Chapter Forty of Lorna Doone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daisy Fifty Five. Lorna Doone by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter Forty. Two Fools Together. That story of John Fry's, instead of causing any amusement, gave us great disquietude, not only because it showed that Tom Fagus could not resist sudden temptation and the delight of wildness, but also that we greatly feared lest the king's pardon might be annulled, and all his kindness cancelled, by reckless deed of that sort. It was true, as Annie insisted continually, even with tears, to wear in her arguments, that Tom had not brought away anything except the warrants, which were of no use at all ex after receipt of the pardon. Neither had he used any violence, except just to frighten people, but could it be established even towards Christmas time that Tom had a right to give alms, right and left, out of other people's money. Dear Annie appeared to believe that it could, saying that if the rich continually choose to forget the poor, a man who forced them to remember, and so to do good to themselves and to others, was a public benefactor, and entitled to every blessing. But I knew, and so Lizzie knew, John Fry, being now out of hearing, that this was not sound argument for if it came to that any man might take the king by the throat and make him cast away among the poor the money which he wanted sadly for her grace the duchess and the beautiful countess of this and of that lizzie of course knew nothing about his majesty's diversions which were not fit for a young maid's thought but i now put the form of the argument as it occurred to me Therefore I said, once for all, and both my sisters always listened when I used the deep voice from a chest, Tom Fagus hath done wrong herein, wrong to himself and to our Annie. All he needed have done was to show his pardon, and the magistrates would have rejoiced with him. He might have led a most godly life, and have been respected by everybody and knowing how brave tom is i thought that he would have done as much now if i were in love with a maid i put it thus for the sake of poor lizzie never would i so imperil my life and her fortune in life along with me for the sake of a poor diversion a man's first duty is to the woman who are forced to hang upon him oh john not that horrible word cried annie to my great surprise and serious interruption oh john any word but that and she burst forth crying terribly what word lizzie what does the wench mean i asked in the saddest vexation seeing no good to ask annie at all for she carried on most dreadfully don't you know you stupid lout said lizzie contemplating my wonderment by the scorn of her quicker intelligence if you don't know acts about and with that 
I was forced to be content, for Lizzie took Annie in such a manner, on purpose to vex me as I could see, with her head dropping down, and her hair coming over, and tears and sobs rising and falling to boot, without either order or reason, that seeing no good for a man to do, since neither of them was Lorna. I even went out into the courtyard and smoked the pipe and wondered what on earth is the meaning of woman. Now, in this I was wrong and unreasonable, as all women will acknowledge, but sometimes a man is so put out by the way they take on about nothing that he really can't help thinking, for at least a minute, that a woman are a mistake forever, and hence are forever mistaken. Nevertheless, I could not see that any of these great thoughts and ideas applied at all to my Lorna, but that she was a different being, not woman enough to do anything bad, yet enough of a woman for man to adore. And now a thing came to pass which tested my adoration pretty sharply, inasmuch as I would fall life of face, Carver Dune and his father, nay, even the roaring lion himself with his hoofs and flaming nostrils, then have met in cold blood Sir Enzorn Dune, the founder of all the colony, and the fear of the very fiercest. But that I was forced to do at this time, and in the matter following, when I went up one morning to look for my seven rooks' nests, behold, there were but six to be seen, for the topmost of them was all gone, and the most conspicuous. I looked, and looked, and rubbed my eyes, and turned to try them by other sights, and then I looked again. Yes, there could be no doubt about it. The signal was made for me to come, because my love was in danger. For me to enter the valley now, during the broad daylight, could have brought no comfort, but only harm to the maiden and certain death to myself. Yet it was more than I could do to keep altogether at distance. Therefore I ran to the nearest place where I could remain unseen, and watched the glen from the wooden height for hours and hours impatiently. However, no impatient of mine made any difference in the scene upon which I was gazing. In the part of the valley which I could see, there was nothing moving except the water, and a few stolen cows going sadly along, as if knowing that they had no honest right there. It sank very heavily into my heart, with all the beds of dead leaves around it, and there was nothing I cared to do, except blow on my fingers and long for more wit. For a frost was beginning, which made a great difference to Lorna and to myself. I trow, as well as to all the five million people who dwell in this island of England, such a frost as never I saw before. Footnote. If John Reed lived until the year 1740, as so strong a man was bound to do, he must have seen almost a harder frost, and perhaps to put an end to him, and for then he would be some fourscore years old. But tradition makes him keep yet as he says, up to five score years. 
neither hope ever to see again a time when it was impossible to milk a cow for icicles or for a man to shave some of his beard as i liked to do for lorna's sake because she was so smooth without blunting his razor on hard gray ice no man could keep yet as we say even though he abandoned his work altogether and thumped himself all on the chest and the front till his frozen hands would have been bleeding except for the cold that kept still in all his veins however at present there was no frost although for a fourth night threatening and i was too young to know the meaning of the way the dead leaves hung and the warm cast prickling like woman's combs and the leading tone upon everything and the dead weight of the sky will Watcombe, the old man in lynchmouth who had been half over the world almost and who talked so much of the gulf stream had as i afterwards called to mind foretold a very bitter winter this year but no one would listen to him because there were not so many hips and haws as usual whereas we have all learned from our grandfathers that providence never sends very hard winters without having furnished a large supply of berries for the birds to feed upon it was lucky for me while i waited there that our very best sheep-dog old watch had chosen to accompany me that day for otherwise i must have had no dinner being unpersuaded even by that to quit my survey of the valley however by aid of poor watch i contrived to obtain a supply of food for i sent him home with a note to annie fastened upon his chest and in less than an hour back he came proud enough to wag his tail off with his tongue hanging out from the speed of his journey and a large lump of bread and a bacon fastened in a napkin around his neck i had not told my sister of course what was toward for my should i make her anxious when it grew towards dark i was just beginning to prepare for my circuit around the hills but suddenly watch gave a long low growl i kept myself close as possible and ordered the dog to be silent and presently saw a short figure approaching from a thickly wooden hollow on the left side of my hiding place it was the same figure i had seen once before in the moonlight at paula's barrows and proved to my great delight to be the little maid gwenny carfax she started a moment at seeing me but more was surprised than fear and then she laid both her hands upon me as if she had known me for twenty years young man she said you must come with me i was gone all way to fetch thee old man is be dying and her can't die or at least her won't without first considering thee considering me i cried what can sir Enzer doon want with considering me has mistress lorna told him all concerning thee and thy thorns when she knowed old man was so near his end that vexed he was about thy low's blood all thought her would come to life again on purpose for the baby but after all there can't be scarcely such bad luck as that now if a strook thee thou must take it 
there be no denaying of him. Fire I have seen afore, hot and red and raging, but I never seen cold fire afore, and it maketh me burn and shiver. And in truth, it made me burn and shiver, to know that I must either go straight to the presence of Sir Enzor Doom, or give up Lorna once for all, and rightly be despised by her. For the first time of my life, I thought that she had not acted fairly. Why not leave the old man in peace without vexing him about my affair? But presently I saw again that in this manner she was right, that she could not receive the old man's blessing, supposing that he had one to give, which even a worse man might suppose, while she deceived him about herself and the life she had undertaken. Therefore, with great misgivings of myself, but no ill will thought of my darling, I sent watch home and followed Guinea, who led me along very rapidly with her short, broad form gliding down the hollow from which she had first appeared. Here at the bottom, she entered a thicket of gray ash stubs and black holly with rocks around it gnawed with roots and hung with mask of ivy here in a dark and lonely corner with a pixie ring before it she came to a narrow door very brown and solid looking like a trunk of wood at a little distance this she opened without a key by stooping down and pressing it where the threshold met the jam and then she ran in very nimbly but I was forced to be bent in two, and even so without comfort. The passage was close and difficult, and as dark as any black pitch, but it was not long, be it as it might, and in that there was some comfort. We came out soon at the other end, and were at the top of Dune Valley, and the chilly dusk air looked most untempting, especially during that state of mind under which I was laboring. As we crossed towards the captain's house, we met a couple of great dunes lounging by the waterside. Guinea said something to them, and although they stared and stared very hard at me, they let me pass of our hindrance. It is not much to say that when the little maid opened Sir Enzer's door, my heart thumped, quite as much with terror as with hope of Lorna's presence. But in a moment the fear was gone for Lorna was trembling in my arms, and my courage rose to comfort her. The darling feared, beyond all things else, lest I should be offended with her for what she had said to her grandfather, and for dragging me into his presence. But I told her almost a falsehood, the first and the last that ever I did tell her, to wit that I cared not that much, and showed her the tip of my thumb, as I said it, for old Sir Enzer, and all his wrath, so long as I had his granddaughter's love. Now I try to think this as I said it, so as to save it from being a lie, but somehow or another it did not answer, and I was vexed with myself both ways. But Lorna took me by the hand as bravely as she could, and led me into the little passage where I could hear the river moaning and the branches rustling. Here I passed 
as long a minute as fear ever cheated time of, saying to myself continually that there was nothing to be frightened at, yet growing more and more afraid by reason of so reasoning. At last my Lona came back, very pale, as I saw by the candle she carried, and whispered, Now be patient, dearest. Never mind what he says to you. Neither attempt to answer him. Look at him gently and steadfastly. And if you can, with some show of reverence, but above all things, no compassion, it drives him almost mad. Now come, walk very quietly. She led me into a cold, dark room, rough and very gloomy, although with two candles burning. I took little heed of the things in it, though I marked that the window was open. That which I heed was an old man, very stern and calmly, and with death upon his countenance, yet not lying in his bed but sat upright in a chair, with a loose red cloak thrown over him. Upon this his white hair fell, and his pale fingers lay in a ghastly fashion, without a sign of life or movement, or of the power that kept him up, all rigid, calm, and relentless. Only in his great black eyes, fixed upon me solemnly, all the power of his body dwelt, all the life of his soul was burning. I could not look at him very nicely, being afeard of the death in his face, and most afeard to show it. And to tell the truth, my poor blue eyes fell away from the blackness of his, as if it had been my coffin plate. Therefore I made a low obedience and tried not to shiver. Only I groaned that Lorna thought it good manners to leave us two together. Ah, said the old man, and his voice seemed to come from a cavern of skeletons. Now you that great John Reed? John Reed is my name, your honor, was all that I could answer, and I hope your worship is better. Yeah, and you sense enough to know what you have been doing. Yes, I knew right well, I answer, that I have set my eyes far above my rank. Are you ignorant? That Lorna Doon is born of the oldest families remaining in northern Europe. I was ignorant of that, your worship. Yet I knew of her high descent from the dunes of Bagworthy. The old man's eyes, like fire, probed me whether I was jesting. Then perceiving how grave I was, and thinking that I could not laugh, as many people suppose of me, he took upon himself to make the good deficiency with a very bitter smile. And know you of your own low descent from the reds of Ori? Sir, I answer, being as yet un unaccustomed to this style of speech, the reds of Ori have been honest men twice as long as the dunes have been rogues. I would not answer for that, John. 
Sir Enzo replied, very quietly, when I expect the fury. If it be so, our family is the very oldest in Europe. Now hearken to me, boy, or clown, or honest fool, or whatever thou art. Hearken to an old man's words, who has not many hours to live. There's nothing in this world affair, nothing to reveal trust, nothing even to hope for. Least of all, is there aught to love? I hope your worship is not quite right, I answered with great misgivings. Else it is a sad mistake for anybody to live, sir. Therefore, he continued, as if I had never spoken, though it may seem hard for a week or two, like the loss of any other toy. I deprive you of nothing, but add to your confidence, if there be such a thing to your happiness, when I forbid you ever to see that foolish child again. All marriage is is a wretched farce, even when a man and wife belong to the same rank of life, uh, have temper well assorted similar likes and dislikes and about the same pendants of mine but when they are not so matched the farce will become a long dull tragedy if anything were worth lamenting there i have reason enough for you i am not in the habit of reasoning though i have little confidence in man's honor i have some reliance in woman's pride you will pledge your word on lorna's presence never to see or to seek her again never even to think of her more now call for her for i am weary he kept his eye fixed upon me with the icy fire as if he scorned both life and death and on his haughty lips some slight amusement at my trouble and then he raised one hand as if i were a poor dumb creature and pointed to the door although my heart rebelled and kindled at this proud disdain i could not disobey him freely but I made a low salute and went straight away in search of Lorna. I found my love, or not my love, according as now she should behave, for I was very desperate, being put upon so sadly. Lorna Doone was crying softly at a little window and listening to the river's grief. I laid my heavy arm around her, not with any air of claiming or of forcing her thoughts to me, but only just to comfort her and ask what she was thinking of. To my arm she made no answer, neither to seeking eyes but to my heart. Once for all she spoke with her upon it. Not a word, no sound between us, not even a kiss was interchanged. But man or maiden, 
who has ever loved half learning our understanding. Therefore it came to pass that we saw fit to enter Sir Enzo's room in the following manner. Lorna, with her right hand swallowed entirely by the palm of mine, and her waist retired from view by means of my left arm, all one side of her hair came down, in a way to be remembered, upon the left and fairest part of my favorite outer skin waistcoat, and her head as well would have lain there doubtless, but for the danger of walking so, I, for my part, was too far gone to lag behind in the matter, but carried my love bravely, fearing neither death nor hell, while she abode beside me. Old Sir Enzer looked much astonished. For forty years he had been obeyed and feared by all around him, and he knew that I had feared him vastly before I got hold of Lorna. And indeed, I was still afraid of him, only for loving Lorna's soul and having to protect her. Then I made him a bow, to the very best of all I had learned both at Tiverton and in London. After that I waited for him to begin, as became his age and rank. Ye two fools, he said at last, with a deep of contempt which no words may express. Ye two fools. May I please your worship, I answered softly. Maybe we are not such fools as we look. But though we be, we are well content, so long as we be two fools together. Why, John, said the old man, with a spark as of smiling in his eyes, thou art not altogether the clumsiest yoke and the clod. I took thee for. Oh, no, grandfather, oh, dear grandfather, cried Lorna, with such zeal and flashing that her hands went forward. Nobody knows what John Ridge is, because he is so modest. I mean, nobody, except me, dear. And here she turned to me again, and rose upon tiptoe and kissed me. I have seen a little of the world said the old man, while I was half ashamed, although so proud of Lorna. But this is beyond all I have seen, and nearly all I have heard of. It is more fit for southern climates than for the fogs of Exmoor. It is fit for all the world, your worship, with your honor's good leave and will, I answered in humbly being still ashamed of it. When it happens so to people, there's nothing that can stop it, sir. Now Sir Enzer Doone was leaning back upon his brown chair rail, which was built like a triangle, as in old farmhouses, from one of which it had come, no doubt, free from expense of gratitude. And as I spoke, he coughed a little, and he sighed a good deal more, and perhaps his dying heart desired to open time again with such a lift of warmth and hope as he described in our eyes and arms. 
I could not understand him then, any more than a baby playing with his grandfather's spectacles. Nevertheless, I wonder whether, at his time of life, or rather, on the blink of death, he was thinking of his youth and pride. Fools you are. Fools you are. Be fools for ever, said Sir Enzo Doom, at last, while we feared to break his thoughts, but let each other know our own, with little ways of pleasure. <laughs> it is the best thing I can wish you. Born girl, be born girl, until you have grandchildren. Partly in bitterness he spoke, and partly in pure weariness, and then he turned so as not to see us, and his white hair fell like a shroud around him. End of chapter 40 Recording by Daisy 55